0: I think this moment should go in the Bad Take Hall of Fame. Judd yeah. Apatow said that Will Smith could have killed Chris Rock. This is an open <laughs> open-handed slap. Yeah. I mean, come on. Howard Stern compared Smith to Trump. Yeah, I, and here's a tweet from Mari Manusian, who's actually a candidate that I've supported in the past. She wrote, pretty disappointing to see white women in politics that I know personally not unequivocally supporting the Smiths on this one. How we made this about white women when there was no white woman <laughs> yeah. involved in this conversation is amazing it. to me. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, welcome back, guys.
1: Corey, where are we going to start? Well, on today's show, 100% synthetic meat. If that doesn't make your mouth water... I don't know what else to say. We'll discuss Bill Gates and his beef with beef. President Biden threw a gaff grenade into hopeful peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. We'll react to his comments on Vladimir Putin. And the Oscars are known for honoring dramatic performances. But this year's Oscars contain some real-life drama. We'll discuss the slap heard around the world. But first things first, let's start by catching up with the news cycle's favorite Supreme Court spouse, Jenny Thomas. Jenny Thomas. Last week, dozens of leaked text messages between Thomas and Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, showed the two swapping conspiracy theories regarding the 2020 presidential election. This brings us back to a conversation we had a few weeks ago about a code of ethics for the Supreme Court, particularly with respect to Jenny's husband, Justice Clarence Thomas. Now, Ricky, what has been your reaction to reading those texts?
2: Um, Well, so she seems to be a lot more politically involved than other Supreme Court justices' spouses. Um, She was very involved in the Tea Party, and obviously, now we know from these Meadows texts, very involved in discussing the January 6th kind of controversies. And although she was there on that day, she did leave before anything got um, violent or out of hand, which is important to note. But um, there are a total of 29 texts in their exchange, and they include, quotes from her. like
1: Help this great president stand firm, Mark. You are the leader with him who is standing for America's constitutional governance at the precipice. The majority knows Biden and the left are attempting the greatest heist of our history.
2: This comes as Thomas was the lone dissenter in a vote about whether they should have to or Trump should have to turn over some of his uh, files on January 6th. And so Ravi, I know that you've thought about the issue of recusal a lot and you're the resident legal expert. So I'll ask you about that.
0: I'm generally pro recusal whenever there's any smoke in a situation and there's a lot of smoke here. And I think one thing to clarify is she says she left that rally at a certain point. I haven't seen any reporting yet to verify that. And I think given the nature of these texts, I would want proof to know that she left that rally and why? Like, why would she leave early if she, if, if the same person who texted a lot of this really incendiary stuff believed the stuff that she texted, why leave early, right? Why not stay and see this thing through if you truly believe that? So I would wanna know first, like, did she actually leave early? Second, some of these texts go beyond uh, even just conspiracy theorizing. She kind of got in the middle of the legal strategy that the White mm-hmm. House was pursuing by suggesting that S- Sidney Powell be the face of the sort of legal front for the trump white house and that's material because at that point Ginny thomas has inserted herself into the trump team and is giving advice on a legal case that wound up getting to the supreme court so that's problem number one which is clarence thomas sat in a case and dissented on at least one case that related to challenges to the election that the trump white house was pursuing Mm -hmm. so and I'll get to the, what the, the legal sort of code of ethics would say on that, but just common sense says that seems like an area for recusal. The second part is. We only know these text messages because Mark Meadows provided them to the January 6th committee. We don't have all the text messages yet, both because Meadows, I'm I'm pretty sure, hasn't handed over everything yet, but also the committee hasn't released everything yet. So we might learn more. But there was another case that was handed down in January 2022 that Thomas also was the lone dissenter on that was about a challenge to the January 6th committee's request for records right, from the Trump White House. And Thomas was the one dissenter saying that the Trump White House could block the release of those records. Now that seems relevant because these are the very records that she could potentially be in. And Mm -hmm. so, and the code of conduct is is very clear on this for federal judges, which technically applies to the Supreme Court, but they have to self-regulate on this. It says, if you or a spouse, uh, have an interest that could substantially be affected by the outcome of the proceedings, and you recuse. And this, there's two cases here that are glaring where he should recuse himself and he didn't.
1: I think the most troubling text message was the one in which she told Meadows, do not concede. It takes time for the army who is gathering for his back. I mean, what is that
0: implying? Is she implying that the U.S. military somehow helped overturn this election? Right. And I think, you know, Tim Miller, the former Republican strategist, had, you know, he, he said something that kind of sums up where I am on this. He says, as a general matter, I don't think people should be held accountable for the spouse's actions, but part of the deal with being on SCOTUS is your spouse can't organize a coup. <laughs> and that's kind of where I come out. But also, I, I I do take issue with the not being held accountable for your spouse's actions. The one thing I would add, though, is the code of conduct does carve out spouses mm-hmm. uh, because, like, that's somebody who have a material relationship to, and obviously, you're, you'd are you be biased and, and not wanting to expose them to harm.
2: So the Thomases say or claim that they don't discuss politics in their household. So I'm curious, is there any precedent for- their jobs. Yeah, which is is hmm. a little hard to believe. (laughs) But um, is there any precedent that we know of for spouses or people recusing themselves because of a spousal connection to something in the Supreme Court?
0: I am sure, but I don't, off the top of my okay. head, know. We'll, you know, one thing we'll do for our, our listeners is we'll highlight this in the show notes. So after the show, we'll take a look and say what what's the spousal recusal situation. Given that it has its own special place in the code of conduct, I'm sure there are plenty of mm-hmm. examples. And it's common sense, right? Like in any situation. For instance, in this nonprofit organization, for example, we have bylaws and standard bylaws, including ours, say you are a family member if you have a financial interest. Uh, or any other material interest in this company uh, that this has to be disclosed to the board, and generally speaking, it is really bad to transact in a way that benefits family members or to hire family members mm-hmm. or anything like that. And it's the kind of thing that auditors would flag even if it made it through our board. It's that serious yeah. to do business, especially if you're a nonprofit like us or a government entity like the Supreme Court, to do any kind of business that would benefit a family member.
1: So where do things go from here? Because I know there are people on the left saying that not only should Clarence Thomas recuse himself from anything January 6th related, but there are people even saying that he should be impeached for this.
0: So what exactly, what is this going to materialize into? Yeah, the complicating thing is he already presided over these cases. If, if, if it was a question of should he recuse himself in the future, I think it's very obvious he should recuse himself. And, and obviously, any case like this that comes up again, he should recuse himself. But I'm kind of a stickler on this. And for longtime listeners know, I applied the same standard to Democrats in the cases of investigations in Trump about recusal. To me, I think the first step is to find out what they know. I think she has to go under oath, not because she's the spouse of uh, a member of the Supreme Court, but also because she's somebody who's material to this case. Like she inserted herself into January 6th. She's an activist who has a lot of influence. Uh, I wanna know what she knew. Uh, and then if there's anything that comes from the questioning of her or any of the document requests that suggests that Clarence Thomas knew any of this stuff, I would wanna have him under oath, or at least in front of the Congress as well. Uh, I know that there's separation of powers issues, but this is huge. This is one of nine people who decide, like if there were nine Clarence Thomases on the court with this kind of bias, There would have been a coup.
2: And in the short term, she can volunteer to go in front of the January 6th committee, which it seems to me like the best route of action, because if there's nothing to hide beyond what is said in these texts and they're just ideas that were not in any way acted upon, then she should be telling Congress that.
1: Right. Well, definitely sounds like a conflict of interest, but we'll have to keep an eye on this story and just see where it goes. So let's talk a little bit about Bill Gates. He is calling on rich nations to switch to synthetic meat rather than eating animals in order to fight climate change. And he's not saying partly either. He wants that figure at 100%, 100% synthetic meat. Ravi, what do you make
0: of Gates's meatless proposal here? So I think, <laughs> I think there's so much attention on Gates on this because he's the one who said it and people are pointing out like, Credibly that he's a hypocrite on issues of emissions. The nation claims he might be one of the biggest emissions emitters, emitters in the world because of the way he flies around the world and has these huge energy-consuming houses. So this is like a question of like, let's pull the ad hominems out, like and not say like uh, Bill Gates is a hypocrite. Of course he is. He
2: also eats meat himself. Yeah, though. also eats meat himself.
0: All true, but that doesn't in any way change the fact that there is something to what he's saying, in my opinion. And, and to set this up, there, there are two different types of meat alternatives that we're talking about. One is, um, you know, kind of plant-based or tofu-based meat alternatives, like Beyond Meat and uh, that kind of stuff, like veggie burger type things, fake meat. That's different than synthetic meat, which is stuff that's kind of grown in a lab, right? And that the, the former are really evolved, right? You can go to any store now. McDonald's is partnering with Beyond. Like you can go to any store, uh, any supermarket in America, and get that kind of stuff. The stuff he's talking about is kind of early stage. Like in twenty twenty in twenty twenty, Singapore was the first country, to my knowledge, to actually um, grant. Uh, a, a synthetic meat company the ability to sell like in this case it was chicken nuggets that were grown in a lab now so it's kind of early stage so he's saying 100 synthetic beef i think he means all um meat alternatives basically saying that we as a society uh the rich nation should go first and move off of meat and i'll get to this the data is pretty stark about what meat does to our planet
2: yeah and i think for me as a as a vegetarian since I was like 14 or 15. This is one of my kind of personal um, internal conflicts where I always get flack from the conservative side whenever I talk about this. But this is my my inner PETA girl coming out. Um, (laughs) I am really passionate about, like beyond just the environment, the tangible right now torture that we put animals under. And I think that that's one element that kind of gets missed in the entire Gates conversation because for a lot of people it's hard to see the um, kind of broader climate change impacts of their meal choices, but it's a lot easier to imagine the animal that you're actually consuming. And, you know, 29 million animals, uh, uh, cows, are killed every single year and they're completely abused. The factory farm process is entirely unethical from the day they're born, they're tortured. It's not just the moment of slaughter. And a lot of them are conscious through the entire process because the lines move so quickly. And I think that beyond just Gates' climate angle, which I think is completely valid, there's also an ethical argument to be made about the right here, right now suffering that these industries are causing. And I, I would say to people who feel like they can't watch videos of what happens in slaughterhouses, that if you can't look at what actually is behind the meals that you're consuming, then you should think about what that means.
0: Right, I agree. There's uh you know, it's, I think this debate is is shrouded in hypocrisy accusations, right? Like there was this bad vegan, uh, show that, uh, limited series that's on Netflix right now. And essentially like this woman gets arrested. It's kind of a long story, but she's like a famous vegan, like restaurant her. And it's part of the arrest. It comes out that she had eaten or ordered pizza. It might've been for her boyfriend, whole story about that. But Part of what I found really interesting about this show was the media was so obsessed with the fact that she was potentially a hypocrite on this kind of stuff. And I I think everybody needs to step back and say, all right, we're not lecturing you, right? Like I, like you, have been some form of vegan or pescatarian most of my adult life, but I have not been perfect. And when I've fallen off the wagon, I've really fallen off the wagon. And I try not to lecture other people about it other than segments like this. And I'm not even trying to lecture. I'm just saying, let's try to decrease our meat consumption. Mm-hmm. Like Jonathan Safran Foer has a really good book called We Are the Rather- Weather about this. I think there was another book you were talking about that he had written. Oh, uh, yeah, Eating
2: Animals um, as well.
0: That's just like, it says, look, just dial it back a little bit. If we all dial it back, everybody would be better. And we love dogs, for example, and there's so many studies that suggest that pigs, for example, are just as smart, if not smarter, and more self-aware, and are able to anticipate their own pain and suffering as much as dogs. And they're not as cute, but for the same, you know, they are ugly dogs too that we protect as a society, right? Like, and we even will protect a dog that's like aggressive, right? Like, so let's extend some of these protection to other non-humans. Let's scale back a little bit. Let's take the kind of moralizing out of it and just say like, let's all do a little bit better. That's why I think the 100% thing is kind of distracting. I think the 100% thing is as well. Yeah. Now the ethical concerns, I can totally see that because
1: that is more tangible. But what about the actual effects that the production uh, and consumption of meat actually have on the environment?
0: There's a lot of data about this and I'm pulling a lot from Gates's book. Uh, He wrote a book about climate change. I think it was like one year ago. I think it's called How to Avoid a Climate Crisis. I I think we've cited it on this podcast before. Uh, My assumptions are that that's a pretty well fact-checked book given the kind of army of people he has who helps him write these books. So, uh, in this book, he talks about how raising animals for food ranks is the highest contributor in the sector that we call agriculture, for- forestry, and other land use. And the numbers are staggering about just how much of the planet we use to create meat and how much of that's wrapped up really in the rich world, right? He says the math suggests that you need 50 acres worth of trees planted in tropical areas. And side note, we need the trees in tropical areas because actually trees planted in colder environments I actually do the opposite than what we need right here. He, He says we need 50 acres worth of trees planted in tropical areas to absorb the emissions produced by an average American in their lifetime. 50 acres for one American. Multiply that by the population of the US and you get more than 16 billion acres or 25 million square miles, roughly half the landmass of the world. That's just the US. So deforestation, greenhouse gas emissions, I can go through like enteric fermentation and all this other stuff about what cows do and they emit methane, which is way more potent for greenhouse gas emissions uh, than even CO2 is or nitrous oxide, which really comes from cow poop, for example, which people like to ridicule, but it's real. But we're just, we're clearing land we're emitting a ton of stuff that's destroying the planet. And the amount of calories we get from beef is really inefficient. And so just to give you a sense of this, producing meat requires us to grow a lot more food. A chicken has to eat two calories worth of grain to give us one calorie of poultry. And for cows, it's a ratio of six to one. So it's a really inefficient way to deliver calories. So I agree with him. Let's lead with the richer nations.
2: Yeah. And to feed that much grain to cattle, it drives up prices around the world. And we could feed an additional 3.5 billion people if we actually just use that grain and didn't filter it through another body in order to ultimately produce calories. Is Bill Gates and
1: the advocates here suggesting that some type of legal action be taken to force this synthetic meat into existence?
0: Well, I think what he points out is that right now, let's let's remove the discriminatory actions. Like some of these meat companies are trying to block this stuff from hitting the shelves and they're certainly trying to get it blocked from even being called meat right for me i'm like well if it's grown in a lab or it's produced in a field if it's the same thing at the end of the process i'm fine i'm like let's all call it meat but they're the you know big you know big meat or whatever you want to call it uh, which we've previously discussed is kind of a very consolidated industry are trying to block the innovation here, with some exceptions. Tyson Food, for example, is actually investing in some of these companies, and so there are exceptions to this.
2: Yeah, and I don't see any world in which, to your point, there could be 100% synthetic meat consumption in the developed world because there are always going to be people who want to eat meat, and I respect their choice, and I believe that's a choice that they should be able to make. I only make my point that I think that if you can't, face like really face what's going on behind the scenes that that potentially is something that people should reckon with but ultimately i think that that should be options open to people and i think as as the lab grown meat especially continues to develop and is shown to be safe and effective and just as delicious as um regular meat then i think that you know there's going to be a gradual societal shift towards those alternatives but that takes time and i don't think that compelling people in the short term is ever the answer.
0: Yeah, we should just also throw away less food. We've done some reporting on this. Yeah. You know, estimates are that we throw away 40% of our food, which includes a lot of meat. Insane. And, and the prices will catch up to this right now. Like as of Gates books writing, he estimates that meat substitutes currently cost 86 cents more than the real thing. Now there's a lot of other reporting that suggests that when you take the meat out of it and you say like eating a healthy diet meat versus non-meat actually is cheaper non-meat and you can get all the nutrients that you need, but I won't go into that debate here.
1: I do meatless Mondays. There you go. So Yeah, yeah. you so, and Eric Adams. I'm yeah. Sk- yeah, well, Eric Adams is on oh, a plant based <laughs> diet. plant-based
2: okay. a diet. Plant-based centered He's a plant-based
1: centered diet, um, Mayor Adams. He's on a
0: plant-based centered <laughs> diet. Well, oh, actually, he made the schools, right? I think he did that for the New York <laughs> City schools. forcing New York yeah. to be
1: on a plant-based there you go. centered diet.
0: I'm for it. Okay. Uh,
1: President Biden made quite the foreign policy gaffe Saturday going off script at the end of a speech in Poland and saying the following of Russia's Vladimir Putin. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power biden's aides quickly walked that statement back and biden himself has scaled back his comments as well sort of saying his words were an expression of moral outrage not a call for regime change but he's getting a ton of flack for even implying such an idea and deservedly so so guys what do we make of this is 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 biden just like does he just want world war three or like what is going on here
2: Well, I think this is kind of one of the few very passionate off-the-cuff comments that we got out of him, but um, he's also said that Putin is a butcher and a murderous dictator, and so... This is rightfully getting a lot of outrage um, in the international community because there are potentials for sort of off-ramp negotiations between Russia and Ukraine right now, and escalating tensions even further is obviously the last thing that we should be doing. Um, And also, Macron is upset about it because he's in talks with Putin and kind of has some progress that he feels that he's being made that's being undermined by comments like this. Um, And also, just in the more extreme sense, which I think from what we've seen, Russia's not taking this all too seriously. But in their nuclear doctrine, like actual threats to the regime are is something that could trigger a nuclear attack. And so, you know, in the in the real large potential term, that is obviously really scary and not something that we should just tread lightly about over moral outrage of all things.
1: Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said in response to all of this, we do not have a strategy of regime change in Russia or anywhere else for that matter. Uh, In this case, as in any case, it's up to the people of the country in question. It's up to uh, the Russian people. So it sounds like they're saying, you know, we're not going to force
0: regime change in Russia, because that's not really
1: possible. But it also sounds like they're saying, you know, hey, if, if Russia, you know, rises up, we wouldn't be, you know, upset with that.
0: Yeah, I, you know, it's funny, as I was preparing for the segment this morning, I had a whole section of my notes that was kind of what aboutism, but I deleted it all, because there was, you know, there was, a, there was a predecessor here that would often say a lot of things. But we have a president that should be held accountable for what he says, and this is what I was asking of the last president and, and his supporters. So that was a backdoor. What about is? It? I realize as I'm saying this, what I'm sure people will point <laughs> out. But uh, in the end, I think he he said something he shouldn't have. His people corrected him. It kind of seems like he's kind of doubling down in a weird yeah, way. As it's of like yesterday, I'm not taking it back. Essentially, yeah. in yeah. the end, I think it, it in a way this is a parlor game because nobody believes the U.S. actually is going to do anything about it. Sadly, yeah. like it's not like we're going to commit troops to this, and no. anything that we would conceivably do. I'm kind of supportive of, which is like provide more military equipment, use other non hot war means like, you know, like cyber warfare, et cetera, to try to slow Russia down. Stuff we're probably doing anyway. And any conceivable scenario in which we would commit American troops would probably be the kind of thing we would all agree. Anyway, it would be right. Like if he starts invading other European countries or something like that. So I'm, I'm kind of like, yeah, mistake. Move on. Well, the right is pounding him on this. J.D. Vance said Joe
1: Biden went to Europe and advocated for a nuclear powers regime change, and then ten minutes later his own White House had to contradict them. Seems like a big deal. Tulsi Gabbard went on to make claims that this was always uh the American military's goal in Russia was regime change. Not a whole lot of proof there, but I- Obviously, with Biden saying things like this, it makes her seem more credible. But I thought uh, a tweet I saw from Rick Wilson was very interesting. So Biden saying Russia needs regime change is an outrage while the Russians actually succeeding in causing regime change in the U.S. in 2016 is just fine. Am I reading this right? So is that fair to compare the fact that Russia for all intents and purposes, intervene in the 2016 election. They intervene on behalf of Donald Trump. Now, we don't have any credible information to say that Trump was in collusion. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that leads to that. But, you know, he's never been brought any tra- charges for that. But Russia did intervene in that election. So is it is it the same thing
0: if we were to intervene in their regime? Yeah, I think. No, it's definitely not like. I, th- But I think I hear what he, I see hear what they're saying but I and I don't want to go through the whole like what was Russia Trump's ties with Russia for example I think it's clear from our intelligence com- uh, community the intent of Russia which yep. I think is everybody can agree they were trying to mess with our elections right so this just to me tells me their their tears are crocodile tears I don't really care how hurt their feelings are about this et cetera he's a guy who you know you know punishes his own media for adverse coverage has done plenty of land grabs before this, whether it's Crimea or Belarus or what happened in Chechnya. He's horrible. If I could snap my fingers and remove him, I would. The problem is the transaction costs and the US and other Western nations' ability to do this. I generally am very cautious about regime changes, This is why I was against the Iraq war. But I'm not that worried about Russia's hurt feelings on this or, or even that they're going to take us seriously on this. I just, I'm not worried about it.
2: Yeah, and I think the conversation over 2016 kind of takes away from just the situation on Ukraine and what's what's actually happening on the ground and the violence that's taking place right now, that's really important to kind of remain our focus refined on. Um, But at the same time, you know, I think that we have a huge history of regime change in the United States, and we've interfered in a lot of different countries around the world. And so it wouldn't be completely unprecedented. But it's important to remember that in these sort of situations where you make a power void, the things that can come up and actually suck up that power are oftentimes much uglier than what was actually there in the first place. And so I think any conversation around regime change should be very cautiously um discussed and I think that Biden obviously was just jumping the gun and just got passionate about it. But um but definitely a sloppy and very consequential slip of the tongue.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. There is a syntactical defense he could make, which is he says this man something like he should not remain in power. He says this man cannot remain in power. You know, that's different than saying we should intervene and do it, right? Yeah. Yeah. But that's I don't want to, you know I, we don't have to go through that. Or you get into
1: semantics. But yeah. yeah um we we'll hopefully Hopefully Russia doesn't take him too serious with all of that. Uh, let's wrap things up today by talking about something that's not getting a lot of attention. Many people expected the Oscars from this past Sunday to be a total snore fest. That is until the Fresh Prince slapped the guy who played a zebra in the movie Madagascar. And Twitter has been overflowing with takes on this incident ever since. It's gotten to the point where I'm not sure there's anything that we can say that's new on this situation, but everyone seems to have a very strong opinion on who's more to blame, Will Smith or Chris Rock. Ravi, I know
0: you watched some of the Oscars. What was your first impression when you saw this? Well, I went through the kind of cycle that I think a lot of people did, which was I was at first reacting, I think, immaturely. I was like tweeting and trying to write like clever tweets and all that. And then I, I we've gone through this as an office. I, I, at some point, I just stepped back and said, why is this exciting to me? I like Will Smith. I like Chris Rock. This is really sad. And although I, I truly believe Will Smith was more in the wrong than Chris Rock, which we'll get to. I think it's complicated, but I do think he was more in the wrong. I just took a step back. And I'm like, why is this interesting to me? And that kind of forced me to ask some tough questions about myself.
2: My first reaction was like, I thought it was staged. It right. just seemed so ridiculous. And I think a lot of people in the audience thought that too. But clearly when he kept on yelling and saying, Keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth. I'm going to. He meant business. Yeah. especially because he laughed at first yes. and so that and the camera cut to him so it was just really strange yeah to watch. very
1: inconvenient for him that, yeah. that that fact and that could have been a nervous laughter or one of those things where he looked over at his wife and saw her reaction and said oh i better do something about this um it's it's a really it's an interesting situation so the husband in me was just like literally and I'm just gonna be honest here I was rooting for Will Smith I said you know if somebody had said something like that about my wife in front of millions of people on live television I probably wouldn't have slapped them. but I definitely get his anger but then the more I think about it like I've done stand up before I'm not too different from Chris Rock as far as our background we both grew up as like nerds in bad neighborhoods so I understand this whole this, this idea of just using comedy to diffuse certain situations right. and so I started to feel really bad for Chris Rock I mean nobody should be assaulted right. on stage or you know especially on live television but anywhere on stage for just saying a joke yeah um, but there's a lot of people calling out the hypocrisy of the actual joke that Chris Rock said he basically made a joke about Will Smith's wife Jada Pickett Smith basically saying
2: Jada I love you GI Jane too can't wait to see it all right
1: referring to her baldness um she has a condition called alopecia something that Chris Rock claims he did not know when he made this joke and you know there are, it's it's weird because Chris Rock actually made a documentary about black women's hair and alopecia was discussed in that documentary so a lot of people especially in the black community are saying well you are literally you made a documentary about black women's hair and now you're making fun of a black woman who doesn't who's struggling with her hair that seems extremely hypocritical
0: yeah i and one thing to clarify i learned this morning is that the wall street journal is reporting that this was an ad-lib joke it wasn't in the prompter The really so that's all that. chris rock did that's what they say in the wall street journal so that was news to me and we were as we were talking about this yesterday offline like that Is relevant because I was kind of pissed at the academy. I'm like, I love comedy, and I love. I I almost think that all almost any kind of joke is is within bounds in the right scenario. You know, I remember Jeff Ross, for example, the famous roaster. You know, people with physical disabilities would ask him to uh, roast them because they felt like it was inclusive. Because I think sometimes people who have whether it's a condition or they have cancer or they have a physical disability or whatever whatever their lot in life, they feel like people feel sorry for them, sometimes feel like excluding them from comedy is a way of actually making them feel worse because then they're like, oh, people are kind of dancing around this issue. I'm not being included in the conversation. So it's a very complicated discussion, right? Like if everybody's afraid to say something to you, then that in and of itself for certain people mm-hmm. uh, can be problematic. I don't know here. The, this is the Oscars. I think the whole this whole thing of like award show comedy to me is kind of baffling. It's one thing in the Golden Globes where everybody's getting hammered and everybody knows it's like the seventh year of Ricky Gervais. If you're going there, you mm-hmm. know what you're getting yourself into. I don't know if like something as stodgy as the Oscars should be having jokes that are this barbed, but in the end, like smacking somebody over it seems – way excessive.
2: Yeah. And I also think that if he had just kind of let it go and then responded after privately, this isn't, like it wasn't really that great of a joke. It wouldn't have made any headlines, I don't think, in any way. Like it kind of just would have drifted off. But then him escalating the situation, like now it's, it's turned all the attention to his wife's uh, medical condition like times a hundred like it turned right. up all the volume and if I were her I'd be I'd be mortified to have all that tension drawn to me and especially in a situation where you know a joke can be insulting and even if he hackled I would have no issue with that or yep. or said something I don't know like yeah. I mean virtually anything else except for physically assaulting him and that's just completely inappropriate and it made it made the situation so much worse for her.
0: Yeah, and some of these takes are just insane. Like this is I think this moment should go in the bad take Hall of Fame. Judd yeah. Apatow said that Will Smith could have killed Chris Rock. This is an open <laughs> this is an open-handed slap. I mean, come on. Howard Stern compared Smith to Trump uh, and this makes me just step back, and there's some you know people candidates that I've supported. For example, here's a here's a tweet from Mari Menusian who's actually a candidate that I've supported in the past. She wrote, "Pretty disappointing to see white women in politics that I know personally not unequivocally supporting the Smiths on this one. How we made this about white women when there was no white yeah. woman involved in this saying, conversation is amazing to me. A lot of and people also reminded her of that unequivocally
2: as the as the qualifier there, not just supporting them in essence or maybe not in the action, like unequivocally supporting these actions. Silly. That's not. A and good then take.
0: we've got a lot of people. People who have been deleting tweets. Mari, for her credit, at least as of this morning, I don't think has deleted that tweet. But there are a ton of people who have.
2: Anna uh, Presley is among them. Diana
0: Presley. Uh, which you know, she notably, I think, she has, has all, the she same has condition, which is say, really yeah. important to note. Jamal Bowman deleted a tweet about this to Congressman in upstate New York. And also, our local assemblywoman, let's look at this tweet. This is her tweet. It is violence to mock someone's health condition and vulnerability. It is violence to physically assault someone. It is violence to not take responsibility for violent actions. It is violence to allow and excuse violence. It is violence to call for violence. Now, some of those I agree with. The first one, though, it is violence to mock someone's health condition and vulnerability. Now, it's immature. It's stupid. But let's make violence about actually physical action that hurts somebody. There are other, you know, charged words that we could use to describe other bad acts that people can have. But like this whole idea that words are violence is so freaking silly to me. And, you know, she deleted this tweet, of course.
2: The sort of language feels very Orwellian, like changing the definition of a word just by forcibly saying that something... It's A is B, even though A clearly is not B, and I think this is the most extreme iteration of people who say words are violence. Because if that is your your framework to look at the world, then what Chris Rock did or what Will Smith did to Chris Rock, like they're they're one and one because violence is violence, and making a joke like that is in and of itself violence. Which obviously this is an example of how that that worldview is dangerous and clearly degrades free speech.
0: Yeah,
1: this isn't the first time Chris Rock has made fun of Will Smith's wife. And it's not the first time he's made fun of Will Smith's wife at the Oscars. Remember back in 2016, Jada Pickett-Smith basically tried to lead a boycott of the Oscars because she said it lacked diversity. Uh, she started a hashtag called so white. And at that ceremony, Chris Rock, who hosted it, basically said,
2: Jada boycotting the Oscars is like me boycotting Rihanna's panties. <laughs> I wasn't invited.
0: I think there was another word instead of panties that he wanted to say there. Yeah, but it's the Oscars, so, you know, you can't, yeah, yeah.
1: but he is Chris Rock. It's it's, it's his style of humor, and, you know, even earlier in this broadcast, um, Regina Hall, one of the hosts, had made a a comment about Jada and Will's uh, so-called open relationship, Right. and so Will Smith has been taking a beating by the media, by social media, by a lot of people in the public because of all these accusations about what his wife has been doing behind his back. And and he wrote a book that was pretty candid about some of this stuff. Yeah. And so I think at a certain point, his mental state just kind of snapped. And I'm not... I'm definitely not supporting what he did, but I understand that position that he was put in. All these people are trying to use this incident to try to make Will Smith look like this monster. Like
0: he's just, like he just goes around doing this all the time. And generally speaking- I have no idea. No it's one possible really knows. this leads. Yeah, it's possible this is an avalanche of reporting of Will Smith treating people harshly, but we don't know that. There's absolutely no evidence that I've seen as of this morning to suggest that. And I think this gets back to where I started on this, which is what is it about these types of situations where we take people, Will Smith probably had 100% approval rating before this, and then we're almost cheering on his worst moment in his life. And I believe, you know, and this is colors of work I do in criminal justice reform. I believe this when it comes to kids in schools. I believe it in our conversations around cancer culture. Nobody should be defined by the worst moment in their life. Charlemagne had a really good segment on this the other day. And when I think about this, I, when I look at Will Smith, it is clear this was about much more than Chris Rock and that joke. You know, some of the stuff you talked about is probably relevant to this. And where I come down on this is I've got enough fucked up narcissistic family members. I know the, the boundary between narcissism and self-destruction and lack of self-confidence and that, that fine line. And I see that in Will Smith's eyes. And this prompted me to say, you know what? I got enough of that in my personal life. I don't need to bring that from Hollywood. Like, and I think a lot of people should be like, instead of cheering this on and be like, maybe this is time to turn off the television. Who gives a fuck about these people? Like, like Bring that energy to the people around you because chances are the stuff that you're seeing on screen, take the fame out of it, probably mimics something you're dealing with uh, with the people around you. And that extra 15 minutes you spend constructing that great tweet, maybe call somebody.
2: And to be fair to Will Smith, I I felt that his apology, obviously there are always the type of apologies. There's go through a million hands and people check them. But it seemed like genuinely heartfelt. And he said, I want to publicly apologize to you, Chris. My actions were not indicative of the man I want to be. There's no place for violence in a world of love and kindness. And you know, to to be fair to him, he did apologize. He came he came straight to Chris Rock and this public apology. And I think that yeah. um, it's important to acknowledge that. And I agree, like one of my my biggest issues with cancel culture is that there's a no redemption sort of route that our society is taking. And of course physical violence is different than words and that can't be conflated one-to-one but then again i believe that anyone should be able to be redeemed if they genuinely regret something
1: well chris rock is not filing charges against will smith and he seems to have he's not made any really major statements about the incident as of the recording of this episode uh and he played
2: it off well
0: yeah
1: he did play it off well he he stayed on the stage and so that's uh i i
0: I wouldn't have been able to do that honestly i would have been so
2: embarrassed and he took this like he took the hit and he didn't escalate anything at all like totally
1: He definitely gets points for that. Well, we thank you all for watching. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. And if you're listening to our podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. We will see you guys next time.